Many would argue that that is the greatest Christmas hymn ever written and certainly um, considered among the greatest of uh, Charles Wesley's hymns, even though he was very bothered by the fact that it was changed over time. Uh, it actually changed almost immediately by George Whitfield to the song that we recognize, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which just kind of feels a little better than uh, uh, Hark how, the, how All the Welkin Ring, which... Who knows even what that means? It means the heaven, but it's older English. So Wesley liked it. Whitfield said, nobody's going to get what you're saying. So they threw in the angels singing. Um, as you go through that hymn, this is, you know, this is free. This isn't part of the sermon. But as you go through that hymn, one of the beautiful things about it is it, it not only goes through the nativity story, but the, the doctrine, the theology of who Christ is is so clear in it which was a, a really important thing at the time that Wesley wrote that hymn because much like today, people even in church circles were uh, just overwhelmed with false teaching and heresy and some old ancient heresies from, from the first few centuries of the church had crept back in and taken over and, and really uh, found roots. And while, uh, Wesley's hymn was directly, many of his hymns did this, but was directly addressing those false narratives about who Christ was. So when you sing or when you hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I want to encourage you to listen closely to what it says about who Jesus is. Not the baby in the manger, but the God of all creation made flesh for us. Not to be a good example, not just to give us happy, warm, fuzzy feelings, but to save us from our sin. This is a powerful reality that far too often in our world is cast aside for sentimentalism. Now, let's, uh, let's get to work. <clears throat> I want to invite you uh, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Today is an exciting day because today is the culmination of of all of our Advent anticipation, as we've been building up, understanding what Christ's coming means, wrestling with, just as Stacy sang for us, what child this is that we're looking at. What is the special thing about this baby in a manger that had the attention of all heaven, that had shepherds coming in from the fields to see what in the world was going on, this was not an ordinary baby. We know this. That's why we're gathered here. So as we read this familiar story, I want to encourage you, as we read through Luke chapter 2, or the first 21 or so verses, unless I get excited, um, to, to do the best that you can to hear it for the first time, to recognize what it is that God is saying here. If you're wondering what the real meaning of Christmas is, here's where we find it. In fact, as, as Chuck invited us earlier, let me just ask you if you're able to stand out of reverence for God's word. Uh, this is a symbolic gesture. There's nothing legalistic about it. But we want to be reminded in our physical being, we want to just remind ourselves that God's word is special. This isn't just a book. It's alive. Starting with... Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. This is the word of God, read in your hearing, receive it in faith. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, for your Christ, who has come to save us and will come again to reign in power. Lord, help us to celebrate today, not merely in the fun and joy and, and uh, ecstasy of a morning with presents and, and family gatherings and all of the, the, the lovely sentiments of the time. But Father, help us to celebrate because Christ is here. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. As we are, um, as we're working through this today, I, I just really want us to be excited. My hope is that you will be as excited as I am and that we will all be as excited as those shepherds were, as excited as the angels of heaven were as they came to proclaim the glorious news that the Christ is here. Now, I don't want to try to manipulate you into being excited. That, that's one of the, the traps that 
we so easily fall into as preachers, as people who stand in front of, of folks and use words to try to bring about a response. What I don't want to do is emotionally manipul manipulate you and try to come up with some crafty way to get us to, to arrive at the right emotions. I want you to see reality. I want you to see Jesus as he is, what the, what the word tells us. And as we do that, my hope and my prayer for you is that the Spirit of God will awaken your heart, open your eyes and mind to see just how glorious, how life-altering and mind-bending this reality is. That said, our core reality for today is that the Christ who came is good news that must be proclaimed. Let me set the stage. As we're doing this, and you can see in your programs that, that we've been working through this idea, this what child is this question that the, that the old hymn brings to mind. I love the song that Stacy wrote us. I so often do I'll say, hey, Stacy, it'd be really neat if you wrote a song for this. She's like, well, okay, that feels like a challenge. So, so then she takes the, the, the themes that we uh, have discussed that we're going to be working through. What, what is the scripture telling us? Where's the direction of the sermon? And she works that into a song. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm just amazed at the gift that God has given and the, the effort and work that goes into the skill of crafting that, that gift. But the, the real point of it is wrestling. It's actually asking the question about the child because we need to work at understanding better who the Christ is that came. We, we spend so much time talking about Christ at Christmas but not knowing him. We think about a baby in a manger and, and we see Linus you know, telling Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about by, by reading the scriptures, same ones that we just read. And that's good and that's right but if it doesn't take hold of us, if he doesn't become for us more than just a concept, then this isn't good news at all, and we are utterly lost. Now, that's not the upper that you want to start a sermon with. So, you know, if this is our homiletics class, I might tell you not to say it that way. But if this isn't the best news ever, the best news in the history of creation, and more specifically, the best news for you personally in your life, then it is absolutely the worst news that could ever be presented. Because if Christ is returning in power to judge and to reign, and all who have sin, all who fall short of the glory of God will be destroyed and face eternal wrath, then we have a real problem that we got to get right. But the good news is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he came as promised with a purpose to be present with us before coming to reign in power. That's the good news we proclaim today. We saw in week one, and you can see this in your programs, <coughs> we, we saw that the, in the idea of the promise, that the promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. 
We looked a little bit about the, at the idea that from the very beginning, the moment that there was a curse with sin, the moment that we fell, God already issued the promise. In the very same statement that he is cursing the serpent, prior to explaining to the, the woman and the man the curse that would fall on them, at the very moment that he curses the serpent, he adds the promise that the serpent crusher would come, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would, bru would crush his head. This is the very beginning of the gospel. There was always the promise. And Christ was not only one who would come, but he always was. He was God himself. He is even God himself today and forevermore. The promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. Then we looked at his purpose in coming, that the Christ who came would save his people from their sins. He didn't come to be an example. He didn't come to give you something to put on your Christmas greeting cards. He came specifically to save us, to pay a debt he didn't owe so that we could be set free from a debt we could never pay. That was his purpose, to save his people from their sins. In the third week of Advent, we considered his presence, that the Christ who came is God in the flesh, present with his people. Even as we were uh, going through the book of Numbers uh, throughout this past year, and we'll pick that up again as we get, get into the new year, the idea was always God's presence with his people. God set up the Israelites in the in, entire encampment of the nation around the tabernacle where he would manifest his presence. He had moved from outside the camp, giving his word to Moses, to inside the camp with everything in their lives ordered around him. God has always intended purposefully to be present with his people, those who belong to God, centering their entire existence around him. Christ was God made manifest, God made flesh to dwell among us. The Christ who came is God in the flesh, present with his people. Last week we considered his power and we looked at the idea that the Christ who came will reign in power forevermore. The Christ who came will reign in power forevermore. As we celebrate Advent, which comes from the Latin for the coming, this coming that we celebrate is the first Advent. That's the good news. The better news, unless it's the worst news, is that he is coming again. But when he comes again, he will finally fulfill all the prophecies that we so often read. When we sing Joy to the World, that's not a Christmas hymn, that's a second Advent hymn. Because when the Lord returns to reign, there will no, no longer be sin and sorrow. Far as the curse is found, he will overturn all of it. There will be no more crying, no more death, no more sickness, no more sin. But that involves his judgment, crushing the enemies of God, 
destroying, burning up, removing everything that is less than God's perfect standard, which automatically, innately, includes us. You don't even need a preacher to tell you that. If you're honest with yourself, you already know. You already know that you don't live up to God's standards. Shoot, you don't even live up to your own standards. How many of us say, you know, we try our best, but we know we blow it, right? To err is human. To forgive is divine. And God, in this first advent, sent his son, God himself in the flesh, before coming to reign in power, to offer grace and mercy to us. This is God saying, look, I'm going to come and the hammer's going to fall, but I want you on my side. I want you to be my children. And all you have to do is receive the offer. And if you'll receive the offer, if you'll come on my terms, face down in the dirt, empty-handed, recognizing the sin that separates you from me, if you'll trust in my son, then I will make you on equal footing with him. And then we reign with him instead of being crushed by him. <coughs> the Christ who came will reign in power forevermore. Today, as I mentioned earlier, as we were lighting the Christ candle, we celebrate the proclamation as we just read in Luke chapter 2, we see that the angels came to proclaim to the shepherds that Jesus Christ is born. The shepherds then went to explore it. It's an interesting thing, exploring evidence as a basis of faith. I won't take time on that, but suffice it to say, God has never, God does not ever call us to a blind faith he calls us to taste and see that he is good he calls us to reason together so that he can take our scarlet stained sin and wash it white as snow he's given us reason to believe and the shepherds go and they check it out and when they check it out what do they do they proclaim it to others who are amazed Today, as we consider this proclamation, we're going to focus in on that single verse uh, of chapter 2, verse uh, 11. Because I think it captures really the heart of what we're looking at. If you've been with us on uh, Wednesday or uh, Fridays on our Bible studies, then you might uh, recognize that we have lately taken to uh, attempting to find a theme verse in the passages that we've been studying. Not always a, a perfect practice, but it can be helpful in helping us to see uh, what the point is that the author has for us. In Luke 2.11, uh, it's actually in your program as your memory verse for today. Aaron, I'm sorry, I forgot to give you the verse, so I had to come up with one on my own, so I, I apologize. Um, in Luke 2, 11, in your program, it's for you in the ESV. I read it earlier from the NIV, uh, the 
Heaven's Preferred Translation, the NIV 84 edition, not the 2011. But anyway, uh, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, or as uh, Daryl Harrison likes to say, the Elect Standard Version, um, in Luke 2.11 it reads this way, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This verse kind of walks us through exactly what we want to see in this proclamation. So rather than give you blanks to fill in, we've allowed you some space. You can take notes as you desire, and uh, hopefully you will. But let's start by walking through this with the first part. As the angels declared to the shepherds, they started with, for unto you. It's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That doesn't mean that it's all for everybody's going to see it as great news. You know that Jesus ends up crucified, right? And we read in Matthew last week about how Herod was so uh, opposed to this news. It wasn't good news to him at all that he killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem that were under two years old. That's a pretty strong opposition. No, the, the idea of this being good news of great joy that will be for all the people is that this child born to a Jewish family in Israel, the Messiah of the Jews was also to be great, no great news for all people from all nations who will trust in him. This idea of for unto you comes directly from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You can turn there if you would. It's a familiar passage, but we want to see it. Again, I want to just always challenge you, whether it's me or anybody else, look at the Word. You don't need to hear a preacher. You need to see God's Word. The preacher is useful and worthy only to the extent that they draw your attention to God's Word. <clears throat> Look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us, Isaiah is writing to the nation, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. If you have an ESV or others, it may render those as two separate concepts. That's a discussion for another time. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Jesus came for the Jews. He came for Israel. He came through Israel. He came to Israel. John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own, God's own chosen people, but they didn't receive him. The good news for the rest of us, for all of us, including Israel, is in verse 12, as many as did receive him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Not everybody's a child of God. Children of God are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, and there is no other way. So whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, Christ was born 
to the Jews, through the Jews, for the Jews, but only those who are Abraham's children by faith. These are those who become God's children by faith. <clears throat> we see also uh, in, in John uh, 4.22 that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus came uh, to be among the Jews and he came for them. We establish it here in, in uh, 4.22. Nope, that's not right. I wrote down the wrong passage. Brad, you can scratch that. I failed. I don't know, but I got, got excited about it, so it was really good at one point. <laughs> it's Christmas. Give me a little slack here. So I still need to get some cinnamon rolls when I go home. As the angels were proclaiming this to the shepherds, that was the point. Jesus is born to you. To you, Israel. To you, Jewish shepherds in the, in the fields. He was born to the nation. He was given to the nation. That's Isaiah's point. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The son has the ruling authority. We see him as the seed of David, carrying on this royal line, ruling forever as the king of Israel, the true and right king of Israel. But not only to you. The reason it's so exciting that he announced this to the, that the, this angel announced this to the shepherds is that these are the outcasts. These are the everyday Joes. They're not particularly uh, wanted by those who are, you know, dignified and classy. They smell like sheep, right? You come in, come in from the field, and, uh, you know, they're a little dirty. They're a little rough around the edges. These are working class guys. The angel didn't go to Jerusalem and announce it to the scribes and Pharisees. Didn't announce it to the wealthy and educated. He didn't announce it to the king. He announced it to the shepherds. This is a beautiful thing. And that good news was not only for the Jews, but for all. <clears throat> Excuse me. Turn all the way toward the back of your book. If you get to Revelation, you went a little too far. Find 1 John. The letters here are real skinny. You get between Hebrews and Revelation, they're all pretty, pretty short. After James, you get Peter's letters, and then you find John's letters. He's got three of them. The longest is 1 John. Here's what he says. Same guy that writes the Gospel of John, same guy that is writing the book of Revelation. This is how he describes Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll read, uh, we'll read verse 1 just to, to set us up, to, to put the ball on the tee for us here. But John writes, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We'll focus on verse 2. My dear children, I write this, this letter, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Notice how he describes Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice of, for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world so not just for the Jew but for the Gentiles 
There is no nation that, that is exempt. It's not a matter of which side of the tracks you come from. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who will receive him, not only in Israel, but from the whole world. Flip back to the left, to the book of Romans. At the beginning of the New Testament, the books are a little bit easier to find. They're a little thicker. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Find chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, this does not probably strike many people as a Christmas passage. I would contend that all of the New Testament is a Christmas passage. But I would encourage you, as you're, uh, if you have some quiet moments or if you're gathered as a family, read Romans 3 as part of your Christmas celebration. We're going to pick up with verse 21 and read through 31. Here's what Paul writes to the Roman church. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, speaking of Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter if you're an insider or outsider, there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of, of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Christ came for all. He came unto these these Jews, as foretold, as promised. But he came also for us. Turn to the right again, just a, a little bit to uh, the book of Galatians. Jump over the Corinthian letters. To get to Ephesians, you went a little too far. That might be because I just did that. Find Galatians 3. When you find Galatians 3, we'll pick up with verse 7. Writing to the Galatian church, Paul says, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. 
All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law, <coughs> excuse me, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Let me just stop for a moment. Paul goes to great lengths throughout his letters to point out that no one has life in the law. The nature of the law is to point out when you break it, right? In the same way that the cops don't pull you over to say, hey, you're doing a great job driving, keep it up, right? When the police pull you over, it's because you did something wrong. That's how the law works. Here's the standard. I'll let you know when you fail. Don't expect me to reward you for doing what you're supposed to be doing. No one has life from the law. The law, by its nature, can only bring death when you break it. That's the whole point. So by trying to keep the law, if on any single point I miss it, I am judged by God as having been less than his glorious standard. And all who fall short of his glorious standard reap the wages of sin, which is death, God's wrath. That's our nature. That's how we're born. We have sin in us. I'm not, I'm not a sinner because I've messed up. I mess up. I sin because I'm a sinner. Because that seed of Adam is in me. Therefore, I desire the things I shouldn't desire. I hate it. I, I, I loved hearing R.C. Sproul say, uh, and he says it even better now since he's with the Lord, but uh, you know what, what R.C. Sproul was talking about, about sin and the nature of sin, he's asked, R.C., you know, do you want to sin? No, of course I don't want to sin. I absolutely don't want to sin because everything in me wants to comply with the Lord who saved me. Well, do you sin? Absolutely, I sin. So why do you sin? Because I really want to sin. That's the conundrum. That's the problem. Each one of us is tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by the evil desires that still reside within us. Let's come to terms with the fact that there's no one clean. Everybody, everybody faces God's wrath. Unless you, lest you get it wrong, understand that nobody ever gets away with anything. You might think that that person who didn't get caught doing that thing, oh, they're, they're getting away with it. Nobody gets away with with anything. God sees all, knows all, knows your thoughts, and he is the judge. That's why he says that vengeance is mine. It's mine to repay. I'll handle this. Nobody gets away with anything. Every single person will either pay for every single sin Every careless word, every careless thought, every evil deed, every selfish motive, every single person will either pay for that fully or find it paid for by Christ. 
He's paid the full amount if you will simply trust him rather than yourself. Okay, back to the text. Pardon me. Verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, quoting Habakkuk. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what he did. When Jesus was on the cross, he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God by trusting him. Hmm. Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He was born for the Jews. He was born for all. For unto you, the angel said, is born. Let's think about that for a moment. Turn to John chapter 1. If you're still in Galatians, you're going to go back to the left. John chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In 66 books, you might imagine I have a few. When you get to John chapter 1, take a look at verses 14 to 18. John, same guy we saw the letter from, says it this way, the word, speaking of Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John, speaking of John the Baptist, testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes before me has surpassed me Uh, comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me from the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God but God the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known this Christ is born he's born Now, that that might seem like a small thing, but think about what that means. Having established already that that he is God, he was with God in the beginning, he was himself God, he is the invisible God made visible for us. Check it out. He was actually born. God with us is a person, not an idea. Through the rabbinical period, the, the struggle with why the Messiah had not come yet led many to believe, as many Jews believe today, that Messiah is more an idea, a concept, 
of God with us, of God's blessing on his people and his eventual vindication of them than an actual person. But we read here in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament prophecies that we read in the Gospels that God with, God with us, Emmanuel, is not an idea, is not some, some Gnostic spiritual idea of Christ. It's not this vague notion of God's presence among his people. But God himself, putting on flesh, being born of a woman specifically to walk among us, physically present, eating, drinking, suffering, facing temptation, and yet never without, never sinning in the midst of that. Entirely without sin, so that the God-man, both God and man, could be perfectly just in upholding his righteous standard and also perfectly merciful in being the one who justifies us and makes us right with himself. We saw previously in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, that all that was happening in this birth of the Messiah took place to fulfill what Chuck read for us from Isaiah earlier, that the virgin would conceive and she'd give birth to a son. And he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. For unto you is born the reality of his presence is significant. But it's not only that he was born, for unto you is born this day. Well, who cares? We don't know what day it was. So many Christians harping and whining and barking about, well, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Yeah, okay. Do you know what day he was born on? Who cares? If it mattered, it'd be in the book. It's not in the book. We have a day to celebrate. If you want to talk about Christmas and its pagan origins or its uh, church origins, you want to debate that, come talk to me separately. We're not going to waste time on a Sunday morning about it. Yes, celebrate Christmas. You should. It's good. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, it was taken over from pagans. Deal with it. So we're roads. So anyway, that's another thing. As we are working through this idea, it's important for us to understand that he was born on a day. Of course, everybody's born on a day. What a dumb thing to say. No, 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 don't miss it. He was born into history. This is a historical reality. Jesus was not just some ethereal idea, but was born in actual flesh and tied to actual history. This is a significant difference from the mythology that was present at the time. From the Greeks and the Romans both, they had these ideas of gods who were mythological. They were outside. They, they interacted, so-called, with, with humanity, but they were outside of the reality that we knew and recognized. In Christianity, what we find is not a religion about a mythological God created to answer our questions, but God stepping into space and time, connecting himself specifically to historical events 
specific days he was born, not out there sometime in the past, uh, you know, just created in the mind of Zeus or spawned on the back of a giant turtle or whatever weird mythology we come up with, but born of those people right there in that town, right there today, right here. You can go check it out, shepherds, because it just happened. It's now. It's traceable. It's tangible. God didn't do that for him. He did that for us so that we could connect to the reality of Christ. He was historical, not mythical. He was tied to time and history. In Galatians 4.4, we read that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Time, bound in time. The eternal one, bound in time. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Turn to Acts chapter 4. If you're still in John, you're going to go to the right just a little bit. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. And, and if you're doing this on an electronic device, if you can forget all the left, right, just tap it. Acts chapter 4. As Peter and John have been uh, preaching the gospel and they have been told to stop. They were uh, taken before the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders who, uh, who ruled the nation. Pick up in verse 18. Then they called them in again. The Sanhedrin called Peter and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, <laughs> I, just, I just wonder, <laughs> I just wonder what the looks on their faces were when this was taking place, right? So, so you arrest these guys. These are just plain fishermen. These aren't educated people. They're not wealthy people. They're, they're just guys who had been with Jesus and it changed everything. And you're standing before the ruling council of 70 elders. And they're like, you stop. Or else. Or else what? There's a whole lot of or else. You don't even want to get there. You're blasphemers. Death is on the table here for you. You stop preaching in this name. Peter and John say to him. judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Check out verse 20. This is, this is the point. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus was born into time. He was experienced in reality. They didn't hear about him they saw him. They didn't grab some rabbi's teachings about what Jesus said. They heard him say it. He was present with them. In 1 Corinthians 15, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Um, I would encourage you to mark that down. In the first eight verses, Paul establishes, this is the greatest chapter on the resurrection I think there is in the Bible uh, as far as clear, uh, explicit teaching on the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection that is to come for all believers. But he starts out by saying, what, uh, what I received, I passed on to you as of first primary importance. All right? And then he's, he, he gets into the, the, the very tangible things. Christ was, he came, he, he died in our place, according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he proceeds to say, not only did he, did he rise from the dead, but he appeared to these guys, and he appeared to those guys, and he appeared to that guy, and he appeared to 500 of them all at the same time. So people saw him, it wasn't a secret, it was happening in time, in reality. And last of all, he appeared to me in a strange circumstance as to one abnormally born. <clears throat> For unto you is born this day. For a purpose, as promised, born as God in the flesh, bound in time to historical events, not only in time, but in space, in a particular place. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, the entire book of Matthew is focused on getting us to understand Christ as the king who was promised from the line of David. And he starts out right out of the gate, Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, seed of Abraham, seed of David. And then he goes on to establish the generations just to show how Jesus is of the lineage of David. Luke gives a different genealogy. We understand that to be Mary's genealogy, also from David's line. So he was legally of David's line by Joseph, his adoptive father. And he was genetically of David's line through Mary, his actual physical mother. And as they're working through this, this picture, or Matthew's working through this picture of the seed of David, the point is that he is the king. I'm going to have you just turn to one, one passage for this, 2 Samuel 7. You're going all the way to the Old Testament. Uh, you're probably only about maybe uh, a fifth of the way into the book, maybe a, maybe a quarter of the way into the book. Once you get past those early uh, Genesis, Exodus books, you start to get into the history. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. When you find Second Samuel in chapter seven, David wants to build God a temple. He loves the Lord. He wants to express his love by giving him a gift of building him a temple. David's built himself a palatial house. He says, why in the world should I live in a palace in this great place while God's in a tent? Well, God didn't ask for a temple. But he turns it around on David and, and basically says, David, you're not the one to build me a house. You've got blood on your hands from all the, the things that you've done. But I'll let your son do it. You can prepare for it. But let me build you a house, David, a house that will last. Second Samuel 
We'll start with verse 8. Now then, this is the Lord uh, speaking to Nathan the prophet. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. (laughs) Kind of like the shepherds in Bethlehem. You know what's really kind of funny? Might very well have been the same pasture. David grew up in Bethlehem, tending sheep. Wouldn't it be weird to think about that? Just that these shepherds are hearing from the angels, the same place that David, the forerunner of Christ, the great king, when he was a nobody, was out there watching sheep and writing songs. Interesting. So anyway. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. When the Lord declares something, this is is a big deal. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In case you thought he was talking about Solomon, Solomon died. He didn't last forever. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. He goes on in the short-term fulfillment. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Christ bore our wrong in the floggings he received. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be forever established. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. In Matthew 1, 20 and 21, the angel tells Joseph, don't don't be stressing about Mary. She didn't do what you think she did. This is a holy child conceived in her. Conceived by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And this child, will be named Jesus. You don't get to name him after your granddaddy or your daddy or after yourself. You're going to name him Jesus, which when translated means God is our salvation. God saves. Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will be a savior. That was the prophecy 
We saw that in Isaiah 9 and so many others in, in Isaiah in particular. But throughout the Old Testament, the promise of the Savior, the idea of a deliverer, was primarily understood to be in a political uh, setting. That this would be a ruler, a warrior, who would come in and defeat the enemies of God. All of which is true, but before he does that, he effects the greatest salvation, the salvation we need from ourselves. From the sin that separates us from God. He, as we see in Isaiah 53, would bear our sin and our suffering and our shame. Just as we read in the prophecy of, of David's line, that Davidic covenant, the floggings would fall on him. He was the Savior. He would save his people from their sins. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name by which men must be saved. It's only Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Turn real quickly to the back of the book again, to 1 Peter. It's real close to where you found 1 John, just a little bit ahead of that. 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh man, there's so much of this I want to read for you. We're going to look at 17 to 20. Yes, I'm just going to stay with 17 to 20, even though I want to read so much more. Peter says this, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know, check this out now, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. This is slave talk, by the way. You were enslaved and you were purchased out of that slavery. You were redeemed. But you weren't redeemed like other people are redeemed. Like normally you would see the redemption from slavery where we just buy you back with cheap stuff like silver and gold. No, it's bigger than that. You weren't redeemed with perishable things <coughs> tied to this world. Instead, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, referring to this sacrifice of atonement that Christ would be. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. A Savior is born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let me draw your attention. I was going to say it's the last thing we're going to look at, but I don't trust myself, so I won't say that. Let's, let's, let's draw our attention back to Luke chapter 2. Back where we started. But let's focus in on what happens afterward. Let's start with verse 26. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In verses 26 to 38, we see the story of Simeon and Anna. You'll recall from what we read earlier that on the eighth day, they did what the law required and they took this firstborn son, all the firstborn children, firstborn sons of Israel, 
every male child who was the first to open the womb would be consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. They would belong to God as part of the Exodus redemption. And as God redeemed the firstborn out of, his, out of Egypt from the, uh, the murderous threats of Pharaoh, he said, the firstborn, the firstborn male is mine. So they take the child and they have him circumcised and they have him consecrated at the temple. And while they're there, check out what goes on. Uh, verse 26. Uh, let's go to 25 because it doesn't make sense without it. Uh, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, another reference to the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here's verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let that sink in for a second. You've learned from God that you are actually going to see the Messiah before you die. Imagine if an angel stepped in right now and said, hey, you are personally going to see Christ return. Everybody's been talking about it for all these centuries. You're going to be alive to see it. I promise you that. That might be a little bit exciting. Simeon is living his life in light of that promise. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus, God is our salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. For unto us, the Jew and the Gentile alike. And for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Pretty heavy prophecy to receive about your newborn son. There was also a prophetess, verse 36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward, another messianic reference, to the redemption of Jerusalem. These two, by the Spirit of God, were able to declare Jesus Christ as Christ and Lord. In Matthew 16, 16, Mark 8, 29, Luke 9, 20, we see the same picture of Peter making the great confession when Jesus says, who do you say I am? You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. 
In Acts 2, 36, Peter, after the resurrection, having embraced the reality of who he is, of who Christ is, Peter points out that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now, that doesn't mean he made him anything other than what he already was. Because the reality is he was God. But Lord and Christ are titles. They're crucial titles. Lord meaning ruler. God has elevated him. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And he made him the anointed one who would come. He's Christ the Lord. He is the fulfillment of all that had been foretold, the promise we had waited for, the Savior we needed, the very presence of God with us, and the one who will reign in power forevermore. Let's wrap this up. Everything changes when we begin to realize the reality of Christ. This, this verse in this section, in this Advent, is so important for us because it is a reminder not only that Christ came, but that the fact that Christ came is a present, historical, physical reality. He didn't just seem to come. He didn't just come spiritually. He didn't come as a notion. He came. To us. For unto you a child is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Everything changes when we begin to realize the reality of Christ. Not merely some religious ideal or some sentimental notion. Consider the shepherds after they see and hear the angels. What do they do? They move. We got to go check this out. You heard what they said. Let's go into Bethlehem and let's go see this thing. And after they find the reality of Christ, after they find the reality of the Messiah, after they find this reality there in a Bethlehem manger, what do they do? They tell others. They're pumped about it because he's real. It's not some idea that we're waiting for that the rabbis told us would be coming. And, and so we're, we're seeing that, that God is with us. No, no, no. He's here. The Christ is here. So they tell others. And notice what happens in the book of Acts as we were just reading from Peter speaking about it. What happens throughout the book of Acts over and over after they encounter Jesus? The reality hits them. And they can't keep quiet. Throughout the Gospels, we see people being touched and healed and changed by Jesus. And the first thing they want to do, as soon as they are changed, as soon as they encounter the reality of who, who he is, is to let everybody know. Why? Because it's that important. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah receives the vision of God's glory and his glory fills the temple, and, and you know, you've, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me uh, talk about this, preach about this, refer to this over and over and over again. And, and he's dumbstruck. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm dead because I'm sin. I'm, I'm a sinful person. I'm from a sinful people. And I've seen God. I'm dead. And God purges his sin 
and symbolically has the angel take the burning coal. It, 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 just to get a picture of God's holiness, the coal from the altar representing the holiness of God is picked up with tongs by a seraph. Seraph means burning one. So you're talking about an angel of God who presents in fire, but the coal I got to get with tongs. That's the holiness of God. And he touches it to Isaiah's lips and Isaiah's sins are taken away. He says, behold, your sins are atoned for. You didn't do anything to clean this up. I did this. And God says, whom shall I send? And who will go? And Isaiah's only response to the grace of God is me, 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 send me, let me go. What's the job? I just want to go. I want to do what you tell me. I want to tell everybody about you. That's what the shepherds did. The angels left heaven to come to a Bethlehem pasture to tell about this news because it's, it's that great. It's that important. They tell others. Why? Because they are not working up courage to share some religious idea. This is, I think, the struggle so often with us sharing our faith is we think we're supposed to do it. And so, let me see if I can, if I can muster up the strength. And I don't know. I could lose my job. I, I, you know, I might lose a relationship. I might, I might, you know, embarrass myself. When you've seen Jesus, none of that matters anymore. You shepherds don't care. Peter and John don't care. It doesn't matter. This is too big. It's too important. And you'll die without this truth. They weren't working up the courage to share a religious idea. They saw the reality of a person who was God with us. The reality of Christ. A real answer for our real problems. This is why we at Real Life phrase our purpose the way we do. It's, it's the same actual purpose for every uh, every household of faith, every local church has the same mission revealed in the scripture. We word it this way. We exist to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. He is reality. Not an idea or a religious principle or a moral code or a positive thought. He is ultimate reality. God himself stepping into time and space and human flesh. Not to give us our best life now but to give us real life forever with him by saving us from our sins. That's the real meaning of Christmas. The absolute greatest news possible and the single most important truth anyone could ever hear and know. He came as God promised. He came to save us. He is himself God in the flesh, present with his people in the midst of our real everyday lives, and he will return to reign in power. But he first came to offer God's grace by reconciling sinners to himself, making himself the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That offer is for all who will receive it, who will receive him by faith. Meaning that those of us who know this reality 
must share it with everyone, especially those in our circle of influence. The Christ who came is good news that must be proclaimed. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak beyond the stumbling of your servant. That as we celebrate today, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be the center of everything. Not the notion of Christ, not the religious idea of Christ or the moral code of Christ, but the person, the reality of Christ changing us, shaping every part of our lives. Lord, do whatever it takes. Break our hearts, crush us. Do anything necessary to bring us to the reality of your son. That we might tell the world that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is born for us And that's good news worth telling. In his name we pray.